0: it's time for another episode of the imbalanced history of rock and roll i'm ray Coop.
2: i'm marcus goldman
0: and this time buddy we're going to go back to the 60s london shepherd's bush
2: i can't wait we're gonna dress real slick
0: nice shoes we're dandy be you'll be looking like a dandy you'll have your uh your Victorian dandy dandy. jacket with the high collars yep. right because it's the era of the mods and the <laughs> who
1: it's all about the
0: who from shepherd's bush Through to Tommy. That's, we figured, is a good place to stop on our first little jaunt into the Who's history here on the podcast. As always, the podcast sponsored by Boldfoot Socks. Save 15% on your order at BoldfootSocks.com. Just enter the code HISTORY15. And our other sponsor for a long time now, our dear friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro.
2: In the heart of Delco.
0: And now in Horsham too. Get all the details uh, when we talk about it later in the podcast, but you can find out where they're pouring in Horsham, Pennsylvania as well. And we're off on another episode, but before we dive into the Who, one of those genres or movements that they help to spawn, punk rock is one of them. And Punk Rock Month is coming up in April, a whole month, some of your favorite episodes about punk rock and a couple new ones april is punk rock month on the imbalanced history of rock and roll and that's true marcus the who had a little bit of the spark in what would lead down the road becoming punk rock
2: cannot wait for punk rock month ray
0: well let's talk about these four guys actually initially it was three of them keith moon would come along later roger daltrey pete townsend john entwistle From the days when they started out and became The Detours, Doug Sandom was their drummer until it looked like he wasn't going to work out as they began to develop their identity, right?
2: Not only their identity, but Roger Daltrey being in charge and running it almost militarily.
0: Oh, there's no fucking doubt he was in charge, right? Without
2: without a doubt. And he, (laughs) he, I mean, a lot of times the arguments, or if you disagreed with him, it ended with a fist to the face.
1: I'm the face, baby, is that clean? I'm the face, baby, is that
2: clean? I'm the face if you want it I'm the face if you want it,
0: And there's a point down the road in our story where fist-to-face leads to Daltrey being kicked out of his own band. He was the de facto leader of the detours, and, uh, you know, he was the one who drove the lorry, did all the stuff. Hell, he made guitars, you know. Mm -hmm. It really was a problem down the line for Doug because, you know, he was staying out late. He was married. He was getting on with life. He was a little older than the other guys. And this is never easy. Pete Best being the most famous case where somebody got pushed aside, right? Yeah. They went and did an audition for Fontana Records. It was early 1964, and they didn't get the deal. And one of the comments that was made to them by the folks at Fontana was about the old drummer. People try to
3: put us to down. About my generation. Just because we get
2: around talking
3: about my generation
0: now by then they've acquired a benefactor and a manager helm gordon he talked to pete they kind of agreed and they went to the other guys and that was it they gave him a month's notice and he left And shortly after that, they hired Keith Moon, the lunatic, right?
2: Yeah, he was a friend of John Entwistle's, and those two, out of all the guys in the bands, were the only who had a genuine friendship for a long time. These guys worked together well, but didn't get along, and I'm sure we're going to get into that more.
0: It's weird, because it doesn't really come off as two factions, but you could say the same about Pete and Roger. They were always very tight, and the other two definitely tight, and not just because drummer and bass player should be. Now, the ox was the quiet one. You always got to watch the quiet ones, Marcus. He would give a, He could give a sly look out of the corner of his eye to Moon, who was always ready to jump into hijinks at a moment's notice. In the middle of a gig, he'd pull something. Uh, we were talking about uh, hearing loss, which is partially due to the fact that they were, for a long time, the undisputed heavyweight loudest band in the world champion. And Pete's hearing loss is also tied to a moment on the Smothers Brothers show, where Mooney sets off his drums, a literal explosion that Pete did not know about.
2: Yeah, uh, Mooney bribed one of the stage techs to put all the cherry bombs and stuff into the drum kit, and he kind of accidentally put a few more in than maybe he should have for a fact. And it all started with a bribe.
1: <laughs>
0: so uh, Tommy Smothers comes on the set after they finish, and they've already been, you know, banging away and everything and as he's coming on to the set he leans in and Keith you see Keith Moon jump back a little bit because he knows he's coming in bam and for a moment it wasn't like on fire but you could see Townsend's hair smoldering he said that's the first time that he remembered a, a bit of hearing loss after that that incident something didn't come back that's
2: possible those fireworks man they had a big bang and back then they were a lot more loaded than the fireworks that we see now It was like dynamite, I think, is what Keith Moon said or something like that.
0: Go look at it on YouTube, folks, and you'll see the proximity of Townsend's head to the the drum that explodes. It's a miracle he survived it, to be honest with you. You know what else didn't survive, though? Tommy Smothers' guitar. (laughs) He comes out to talk to the guys, and he's got the guitar strapped around his neck like he always did on the show. And Pete, in his post-explosion rage, rips it from around his neck and smashes it into bits. And Tommy looks at the cameras and says,
1: Hey, Dick, uh, yeah. i like to borrow your bass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, good stuff. Good times early on for The Who. And honestly, I think up until the time beyond our storyline for this week, when they lose Keith Moon, there were always good times. Even when there was crazy shit and they were pissing at each other and they are fighting, whatever, there were always good times with The Who in the house. We're enjoying this, just getting into it here on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Along the way, I mentioned Helmut Gordon, and they also had uh, another manager, Peter Meaden. He had an old-school London style. He had henchmen and shit, you know? You don't do what I say, I'll send him over, he beat you up. You know what I'm saying?
2: Like the Led Zeppelin guy.
0: Maybe he liked Peter Grant a lot, I don't know. This is the period of time when that was going on, and it was before they met Kit and Chris, so... They're going through the process of finding the new drummer after they fired Doug. Right. Guess who they auditioned?
2: Who? Are you ready? I'm ready.
0: Mitch Mitchell of the Mm. Jimi Hendrix Experience. No. Yes. What? Exactly. What? So this is kind of what was happening as they got out of the starting blocks. And then along comes Kit Lambert, Chris Stamp. And they have a bit of a vision. They were organized And the who was not. They were being managed by a guy who was an old school manager who didn't get what was going on, who didn't have a vision for them for the future. He was just trying to manage these kids till the next ones came along. Let's talk about the name game. They started out as the detours and and there's a lot of discussion about how they adapted to the name, the who. When Maiden came in, he threw that out and had them change their name to the high numbers. He thought it was more in keeping with the times. understand and what the who were about to learn and what lambert and stamp did know was that the mods were forming out there in the clubs and in the bars these are the disaffected and as it turns out a lot of them were the kids who were gravitating to the music of the who already they saw it and they decided you know we need to move these guys in that direction help them to find who they're supposed to be and not just
1: milk them for money but they did some of that too I ran this club, the Railway Hotel, and it was a real dump, really. It was a basement of a pub. I mean, it was there that Kit Lambert was driving along and saw outside this whole line of scooters, Vespers and Lambrettas parked, and, and Martin Parker was talking and was intrigued because he was looking for a band to include in a film that he and his partner Chris Stamp wanted to do. And he came down and this guy said to me, there's a guy outside in a suit, very official-looking bloke and we were worried that we were going to get caught by having too many people in the So Lambert said he looked in the club, he said it was like hell. Like a version of Hell, he said. It was all dark. And he was just, he said immediately he knew that was the band he was looking for because there was all these mods, you know, watching Moon go mad or whatever. And they were great.
2: That time period in London was wild because the youth were so disenfranchised. They were so angry. It was post-World yep, yep. War II. It was a crazy time over in England. They had just had the shit bombed out of them by Germany. and
0: Most of these kids were born after the war but were de- Dealing with the aftermath but they had money they had some resources that's why a lot of the mods started to dress nicer and uh, even a little bit dandy if you will started buying scooters especially the Vespa if you had a Vespa that was cool right and they could afford to travel stay places and they had money for drugs These are the combined forces that were fueling the beginning of the mod movement.
2: That's how you get big quickly, and the fact that these kids had the money and the train systems.
0: fact is, if they didn't have an opportunity to take the the scooter or the train, they would just go to the local place and see them. And that's how they develop a regional following throughout the country. And started to become a sensation, and then they got to open for the Beatles. They got to open for the Stones. They got to open for the Kinks. Those guys were the first wave. They were setting up the second wave of the British invasion, and they were playing behind those guys at home.
2: It had to be pretty intense as far as pressure goes, playing, opening for some of these first wave bands who were established and who were doing it so well live. So
0: You had two things. First, that pressure could be reversed as well because you get to the point where, well, we're going to try to attract some people who like what we do here tonight. Fuck it if we don't, right? We're getting a chance to play and we're gigging. Mm -hmm. They went from playing once a week or so to playing every other night or every two, three nights in a row. Then they ended up with all this money in their pocket. At a time when people were making 10 quid a week, they were making 30 quid a week. There were fights over it. People couldn't believe it. As they go forward, they hook up with Lambert and Stamp, and they go to visit Pete in the apartment he's keeping with his dear friend Barney who's one of the people that gets left behind in our story. They were living in filth, and they couldn't stand it. The guys couldn't stand that this guy who they saw had this vision had to live in this, you know, squalor. It wasn't like they didn't have the money to do better. They were just lazy fox. So they move him into this upscale neighborhood in this Tony apartment building, you know. He starts to develop his own space a studio space, and the beginning of Pete Townsend having morning tea and then going into the studio and spending the whole day in there begins to take shape, and it all came with a move to a nice apartment near the regents and the gentry.
2: That's so wild. Yeah, at that time it seemed like all he wanted to do was play music so he didn't give a crap about his living space because that's where nope. he would sometimes eat and sleep and that was it. You're 18, you're 19, you're 20, you're young. You that, got
0: money in your pocket, yeah. you got some
2: cachet. You're going to hold on to it or spend it on your guitars and your amps and those other things, not on the place you live in
0: kit had a bit of a reputation he was a dandy so that made some people think that he was gay which was scandalous back then and so that led to some innuendo about he and pete but he said in his book who i am that that never happened however kit's girlfriend anya who was an older woman showed him what for he talks about how he was a little bit jealous of the other guys in the band because of their prowess with the ladies
1: i'm telling you Tell the truth. I know your man.
2: I can see that you're in need. I'll show you. Yeah, you belong to me, you're gonna no. No no. No
0: no Yeah I'm gonna know you Not just in getting the girls, but in knowing what to do when you get there. And Pete developed a little slowly in that department, partially, I think, because of the shit that went down when he was staying with his maternal grandmother, Denny. But Anya showed him the ropes. An older woman experienced in the ways shows a young man how to get it done. It's wonderful.
2: That's an education.
0: (laughs) Man, I almost had the coffee to my mouth when you said that if I (laughs) had another split second later, I would have sprayed the entire operation.
2: I'm glad you didn't.
0: They kept working that maximum R&B angle, Marcus, in their song selections for shows and to record. But the labels that they were pitching, like Fontana, was really looking for new, original material, not retreads, right? But finally, they get the opportunity to go in the studio and they're working with a producer who knows how to record things. Everything's live. He was friends with uh, Jimmy Page, and that's how Page ends up on uh, a couple of these Who tracks. Mm -hmm. When you're listening to those early recordings of the Who, you're listening to the man, Shil Tommy, at the wheel, driving the bus, the magic bus, if you will. When they decide to part company with him because he's not getting the vision that Stamp and Lambert see... That's when it gets bad for everybody. They go to court. Tommy wins because his production deal that he signed was solid. It gave the band almost nothing for all that they were achieving.
2: I'd be pissed at my managers if I was those guys.
0: And that's when Stamp and Lambert come in. They're creative about things, but not creative enough to sidestep that contract.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised uh, Roger Daltrey didn't handle it the old-fashioned way, knowing how Roger Daltrey liked to handle things when he got mad. Just saying.
0: I wondered that myself at one point because, you know, fighters want to fight.
2: And they were very volatile and high-spirited, I guess, would be some words to describe these cats at that time.
0: Now, here comes another what moment for you. Okay. Do you know who tried to swoop in and, quote-unquote, help with their exit strategy? Who? Alan Klein no way Pete goes to new york no. first off yeah and klein picks him up in a lincoln continental that is the same model modeling year that pete has just gotten back home so right away there's simpatico right now klein wants to get involved but at the same time i'm going to bring up another name from our clash episode dj guy stevens who'd been influential in playing the who's music in the clubs Here's that they're going to go with Alan Klein and Andrew Goldham the manager of the Stones.
2: Oh, yeah. He's the guy who produced London Calling. That's absolutely crazy.
0: It is. This is London in those days, yes. right? This... Now, check it out. In this meeting with Pete, it is alleged that Alan Klein says, basically, just let me get started on legal proceedings. Andrew and I will get things going. Oh, the brakes get put on big time. With that deal being stymied, Stevens. Starts to put together another meeting with the band, and you're never going to guess who showed up with Alan Klein for this meeting. Who? Chris Blackwell. No, no, pre Island, Is ha- Chris Blackwell. No, were the who almost an Island Records band? That's the question I have. Not was it? When was it? Did they almost end up going on Island and and having Alan as the manager? Wow. So you got to understand. He wanted to manage the who. He wasn't managing the Stones Affairs. He wasn't managing anything in the Beatles world. He was still trying to find a piece of this amazing thing that was going on that he could be part of and manage. So it didn't work out. It wasn't going to be Oldham. Okay. Okay. Then I'll go and I'll get Chris Blackwell. Maybe we can make a deal with management and, and label it. This is the way he was working every angle.
2: Wow. That's crazy.
0: Something really bad happens though around this time. And, and it really has an impact on the who for a long time. The guy who made it work the guy who was in charge of the who getting there setting it up setting it off making it sound great breaking it down getting home mike shaw paralyzed in a lorry accident it's a van loaded with equipment his loss being paralyzed is enormous and while he continued to be part of the band's chemistry directing things from his wheelchair uh, that took time and they lost one of their key guys at a time when they were really beginning to take so let's remember Mike Shaw as part of this because I don't think they get to where they're going without all of these things falling into place after they all meet, of course. You know, Marcus, when we did our episode about Quadrophenia, we kind of skirted on the issue that Quadrophenia being four meant the four members of the WHO, each of them with their individual personalities represented by the Quadrophonic person. They are four definitively different faces and minds and together they comprise one of the greatest rock bands of all time who
2: without a doubt and the chemistry is unbelievable having four personalities that are so different and at times volatile and unpredictable musically brilliant just that combination is chaos and they are chaos personified
0: so let's look at the four faces of the who Pete Townsend. He was born into the swing era Bohemia. Uh, those days were spent growing up with his parents, who were musicians traveling and holidaying. They would go to holiday camps and play all summer. Dad was heralded as a saxophone player. He played with the squadron heirs in the service. And later, He and mom would spend so much time on the road and away that young Pete was left with his grandmother, Denny, and she was a bit of a handful. I'd say today you would never, ever leave your child with a woman like Denny, who was his mother's mother. Why not? Her behaviors were so demented that she forced mom and dad to come back to London and settled down a bit, if you will, they had no choice. And at one point, as she got older, they were kind of forced to take her in and put her up in their house because her behavior was just so bizarre. The things she said to Pete are chronicled in his book. You want to find out the whole story. It's there. And it took Pete a long time. We talked a little bit uh, about his awkwardness in getting into sex and sexuality and how to approach it. Because he, I think, spent most of his youth trying to get over this traumatic experience of living in this woman's house. Once he's back with mom and dad, things start to get more normalized. He goes to Ealing, which is a great art school at the time. It's funny because his youngest, Joseph, is in art school just like his dad. And it's while he's in art school that music starts to get more important, that his guitar playing becomes more important, and he starts playing with bands and stuff. And eventually it got to the point where I think his favorite teacher basically said, why are you even coming here? You're making 30 quid a week. Are you kidding me? Go out and do your band. You can always come back to school. And that was his plan. And he met Roger. (laughs) (laughs) now roger's the oldest of all the four of them he was born in march of 44 east acton you know pete grew up on acton hill in uh, west london and he went to what they called victoria primary school and then Acton grammar with pete and john entwistle so they were all in the same school different years i guess and showed promise initially pete always said oh he was on his way to being a great student but In his book, Roger Daltrey says that on his last day after he finally left, the headmaster said that he never amounted to anything but a worker drone. And that's why he named the book, Thank You, Mr. Kibblewhite. He was the name of the headmaster. Basically, he told him to fuck off on his way out the door, I think. And this attitude kind of led around to roger's reputation early on that you know basically if you don't do it my way and we come to loggerheads somebody's going to get a fucking fat lip and roger was pretty good with his fists and good with his hands too i guess annie haslam would call him a banger was yeah. he was he a banger
1: i think he so. was good
0: with metal metal shop stuff and he really thought that was it for him and that's why he thought now nope, i gotta really work on being at a band because i can't do this factory shit the rest of my life right yeah.
2: Totally. And originally, he was a guitar player and ended up uh, moving to lead vocals after a bit. So,
0: Yeah, I guess he always kept playing the guitar. He made guitars.
2: Yeah, he made (laughs) guitars. His first guitar was a Strat replica or something like that. A Red Strat replica or something like that. And that's really cool. And John Entwistle made his bass. And it's really cool that these guys were so proactive and so focused in what they really wanted to do they knew this was their path every one of them knew that they were going there
0: you know they could have been called the hair that was another name that was suggested when they were trying to come up with a name
2: I... think about it the hair talking about my generation uh-uh
0: a <laughs> M- gentleman <laughs> They came all the way from England just to be with us here at Woodstock. It's the hair. Yeah. In those early days, they didn't have all the long hair, but it was coming. It was probably over the years, so they thought they had long hair, just like the Beatles. (laughs) And
2: Pete Townsend still had
0: hair. So they wake up the next day. Daltrey makes the decision because he made all the decisions, right? It's the who. Okay, everybody all right good and uh, at one point that really you know it's my way or the highway attitude did bring them the loggerheads with uh entwistle and with moon leading to an incident where the band gets together and they decide they're gonna fire roger they're gonna find a new singer i guess it's still early enough on where they could have done that but you know i don't know He kind of was, his band.
2: And they did make an agreement when they took him back that they were going to be a full band and everybody was going to have equal say. So that was a positive step forward in reigning Mr. Daltrey in a little bit.
0: And fomenting the spread of communism.
2: (laughs) 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 Pure equality. Absolutely.
0: It, it was unusual, to say the least, that this is how they were coming around to all this. But there were forces of nature going on, you know, mm-hmm. and the ox, he was quiet. I think one of the reasons he was quiet was that he came from a strained household as a kid. Uh, his parents got divorced and that wasn't too common in the 40s and him working as a tax clerk. He finds his way into the detours with two mates from primary, right?
2: I think it was Roger Daltrey who saw him with a bass and asked him to join the band.
0: So, that's three of the faces. Now we come around to the lunatic on the drums.
1: One of his tricks was to, if you're at a restaurant, he wasn't getting attention or whatever, he'd strip off naked and lie on the table. He
3: always made you laugh. He always had a laugh there for you. The spotlights will be on him if he was at the party. I mean, he just, uh, oh, there's Keith Moon.
0: Let's see what he's going to do.
1: Wherever he went, Keith Moon was the life of the party.
0: The Insaniac, maniacally over the friggin' top, day in and day out. Most people couldn't stand to be part of his universe for more than a few hours at a time. Many said they weren't sure how his first wife, Kim Kerrigan, could deal with him. She didn't, and eventually they divorced in 1975.
2: Wow. Yeah, he's... An interesting cat. One of those guys that I've read people say was one of the smartest people that they'd ever been around. And. Yes. Maybe he was so smart that he had a hard time dealing with everybody else that wasn't on the same level as him and not just
0: that that wasn't at the same speed as him his brain was working at lightning pace think about the drum work you know another student of buddy rich who loves that speed and and precision right Yeah.
2: yeah just one of those guys
0: and in this story his prowess is developing There's so much more about all four of these guys, Marcus. We could really do an episode about each member of The Who and go into depth. Maybe when we've done like a thousand episodes and we're starting to run out of ideas.
2: (laughs) It's rock and roll history. These will just add to the great ideas.
0: Uh, Why don't we take it to the bridge, pause for the cause, come back to talk about the music. Everybody into the music of The Who? Yes. That's what's next on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll.
2: Ray, I am so excited for our new sponsor of the podcast, Boldfoot Socks. The story behind this company is really solid. We have a gentleman, Josh, who owns the company with his family, who's a veteran and a family of veterans. And he tried Boldfoot Socks before he owned the company to use in a 100K trail race. And they had no problems. I mean, his feet felt fine afterwards, except for however your feet would feel after a 100K trail race. But there were no problems with the socks or anything. And so he and his family decided they wanted to buy the company.
0: That's an impressive story. And they have everything from dress socks, compression socks, athletic stuff. And the designs are super cool. So check them out at boldfoot.com. And... If you're a listener to the podcast, you can save 15% on your order with the promo code History15. That's History15 at boldfoot.com. Boldfoot socks, grown here, sewn here, 100% American made. You got to love that. And 5% of all of Boldfoot's profits go to veterans in need. It's a veteran family, a veteran owned company, and we thank them for their service and for their sponsorship of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. A crooked eye and a new slate of freshly brewed ales. And your favorites, right? Of course,
2: the favorites always. I'm excited to try some of these new beers in 2022 as well, because it's a new year. Try some new beer.
0: See what's new in 2022. (laughs) at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro. Always a good time to be had there. The live music, the events, the blues jam on Wednesday nights. And of course, you not only can have the brews that are made right there on the premises by Jeffrey, but they've got Pennsylvania craft spirits and wine and just a good time to be had anytime you slide by Crooked Eye in the heart of Montgomery County and in the heart of Delco near you.
2: That's right. Check out Jamie's House of Music.
0: And they've announced the third place to get your crooked eye at speed raceway in horsham pennsylvania always something happening man always something going on behind the eye a crooked eye
3: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds. Now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function,
0: So let's dig into the music where every band of the 60s started on the singles charts, right? What happened with singles? The first single they released was As the High Numbers on Fontana. It was called Zoot Suit, which is referenced by Pete and Future Songs. And the B-side was called I'm the Face. And the Faces, as we found out, not the band, as we researched this, is that the Hundred Faces... Were the leaders of the mods and that the mod thing was happening and the who was their favorite band right
2: that's so wild that all these slick guys in zoot suits were totally bananas for the who who were smashing instruments on stage
0: and they loved i can't explain the first big single for the Who. Copy. Now the B-side was Bald Headed Woman. No blues tune, right? Then they did Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, and that's the song where they needed a little help with the acoustic guitar and Jimmy Page is on that one. Got another single, My Generation, which is the first song that's from the first album. And that whole process of work the stutter, that's a whole nother story, how that all came about. Also in 65, Substitute. These are big songs.
2: I can only imagine the youth going crazy hearing this new sound that makes you move and it's vibrant and it's got this different kind of energy.
0: who starts thinking about albums because albums are becoming the thing so when they make their next few songs like the kids are all right and my generation they go on to that first album and the kids are all right turns out to be the big single initially from that
1: album i know if i go
2: so wild that that was a bigger hit than my generation because my generation is the one that still gets more radio play today
0: a case where the u.s and uk releases split happens in 1966 when happy jack becomes a huge hit in the u.s and that leads to an album being named that. Prevent Jack from happy. Oh, I saw Pictures of Lily, which no one knew at the time was about a masturbatory fantasy over photos.
2: Uh, <laughs> I am today's years old when I learned that. Holy cow.
0: Well, it's good that we both learn as we do this podcast. You teach me shit all the time. Thank you, brother. <laughs> And 1967 closes out with a song really shows the sonic universe that Pete Townsend's going to be living in. I Can See for Miles.
2: I know you've me, now here's a surprise. I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes. I can see for miles. And-
0: 68 brings us another case where the U.S. drives the market with Magic Bus, no pun intended.
2: This album, The Magic Bus, seemed like a, an album guide to what they were doing, almost like an album companion to their tour in the United States.
0: And it was the first true stereo album released by The Who in the United States. And after that, the releases all sync up between US and UK because Pete starts to grow the band's album concept facade. Whether it's Tommy and it is completely, absolutely 110% the same in every territory in the world, it's a goddamn rock opera. It better be, right? Mm-hmm. So that changes everything for them there in 69, the way that the Beatles changed everything in their universe with Sgt. Pepper in 67.
2: They had been really working on Tommy for a long time through live performances and through working and working on these songs. Pete really, it seems, overworked himself to make this vision happen, if that makes sense. He kept changing it and altering it and adjusting it.
0: A quick one while he's away is reflective of his own childhood. Uh, Dad was on the road. Mom was forced to stay home. Mom got a little on the side, just saying. It was quirky and weird, but kind of like Pete's mind. And I don't know if you realize, but they all do songs on that album.
2: Yeah, because this is the album where we became graced with John Entwistle's talent and his sense of humor in Boris the Spider. He's up my wall. Black and hairy, very small Now he's
3: up above my head Hanging by a little friend
2: And that song still gets a lot of requests at our radio station today, especially when we do things like fill in the block weekends and The Who comes up, Boris the Spider, Boris the Spider is one of the most commonly requested songs I get.
0: And at Halloween, you can't forget that. (laughs) True. Now, the next album from The Who is in response to the critics who basically were saying that they were trying to sell out. So they call the next album the Who Sell Out?" And guess what? It's the same album in the US as it is over there. and you've got songs like Armenia in the City in the Days. and I can see for miles. I heard that song and I went, "What the fuck is that? And what it was was mass clarion call of America's youth to the sound, that sound. It prepared us for Tommy.
2: That is true. That is a great setup for what was to become of Tommy.
0: They all had their own commercials for the fake products that they were accused of selling out. That's the one where they're bathed in baked beans and using giant (laughs) deodorant. (laughs) Heinz baked beans. (laughs) Our Love Was is one of those. Very stark, very Pete. uh, Sunrise and I Can't Reach You. These are the songs that say, hey, something else is coming out here that's going to be part of the future and the future is tommy you know all the discographies in the universe marcus say it's the who's fourth album but for me in a lot of ways it's the who's first album the first time that i heard what would become one of my favorite bands for all time as a younger guy marcus what songs were you drawn to and and at what age
2: I know for a fact that Pinball Wizard was one of the earlier songs I heard before I knew who the who were, or I knew anything about the Tommy record, because it was the mid-70s and it was still getting played on radio all the all the time. I mean, all the time. And then in the late 70s, when I started getting exposed to Bowie and The Clash and the Sex Pistols and those bands, I started uh, learning more about The Who and some of their stuff. Pink Floyd was another band I got turned on to after hearing some of their music and not knowing what it was. So I started, you know, researching it and being like, whoa, these guys are pretty uh, interesting. Finding out that they were a big influence on the jam was another big reason for me to at least learn a little bit about them because of... My love for the jam,
1: and screaming You concrete, a baby straight on life,
0: Beyond uh, Pinball Wizard. Let me ask you, what songs, when you first listened to the album, were the songs that grabbed you right away? These are the songs that I really like from this big group of songs.
2: Overture and It's a Boy really stuck me hard at the beginning of hearing it. Um, Also, Acid Queen. There's something about that song that I really like. Sure. It's scary as shit man It's totally scary but during the movie It was a bad trip almost Having seen the movie which was Done a few years later um, Recently and watching it it Was kind of uh, mind blowing Because it gave you a Clear visual of what the album Is about and At times it's disturbing and it's Dark and it's scary And it's pretty fucking intense and it's not
0: a true biography or autobiography by any means then it's 1921 21s going to be a good year marcus here after world war one we're going to end all wars and life's going to get good really optimistic point of view right
2: the journey definitely musically was trying to take a more optimistic trend
1: got a feeling 21 is gonna be a good year gonna be a good year could be good for me and her, but you and her, no,
0: never setting off an amazing journey into sparks and the Hawker which is a Sonny Boy Williamson song for flavor kind of setting part of the story tone
2: yeah that's kind of a bizarre one i heard that one again and was like oh yeah this is the weird song on the album i remember this
0: one <laughs> that's funny that's how you put
2: it <laughs>
0: and then you flip over to side two and it starts with an account of christmas
1: Did you ever see-
0: Great stuff, and then the weirdness starts to creep in. John Entwistle's contribution to side two. Cousin Kevin. Cousin Kevin's the kind of guy who'll punch you, kick in the ass when nobody's looking, you know, and maybe do other things too.
2: In the movie was a creep with a capital yes. C. We're on our own Cousin.
1: Creepy. With a capital
2: E. But that whole Christmas video with Cousin Kevin was wild and trippy and just during the movie I kept asking myself, what's happening? What's happening?
0: It's implied and it leads to the problems that Tommy has and to undo them they take him to see the Acid
1: Queen. If your child ain't all he should be now, this girl will put him right. I'll show him what he could be now,
2: just give me one And it's so wild how Tommy shut down, and they do a great job describing it in song because of what he experienced with his mother and her lover killing his father after he returned from war, after he was presumed missing and dead. Seeing that whole psychosis visually and that whole thing happen visually made it a lot
0: clearer. There is a parallel between Townsend's real life and the story of Tommy. It's not exact. And then, At the beginning of Side 3, Keith Moon does it great in the movie. Uncle Ernie takes center stage. He likes to fiddle about. Uh, Do you think it's all right to leave the kid with Uncle Ernie? Yeah, fiddle about, you know? So there he is, completely locked off from the world, you know? And you know where to put the cork, right? So he's all senses are now locked out. He's a sensation. And everybody wants to be like Tommy because he's the pinball wizard. And it becomes a hit song. And man, everybody knew the story of Tommy after that, at least that part part of it. Then they bring in the doctors because they've gone beyond the acid queen. Go to the mirror boy, tell me what you see. Tommy, can you hear me? Flash the mirror. You know, these are the songs that really bring it all to life in a dramatic fashion. And this was not part of rock and roll. Why, Marcus, were they getting away with this? Rock and roll doesn't tell stories like this in long form. What's going on? The music behind it was so powerful. A lot of people didn't understand why this stuff is on an album. Listen to the words. Oh, yeah. It was one of those double-double gatefold albums. You could fold it out. All the lyrics were printed so you could sit there and read along, almost like you had a libretto, right? Uh, So, Tommy, Can You Hear Me leads into Smash the Mirror, done beautifully in the movie. I don't know about everything in the movie, but that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And then, wow, one of the most underrated songs on Tommy, Closes Side 3. Townsend in Full Throat, singing Sensation.
2: You feel me?
0: There's another side. I know. I know this album. Ugh. well, everybody thinks they have a cure, so miracle cure is part of the story. And Sally Simpson,
1: she thinks she has the cure for what Mm ails Tommy too. Love cure. And
0: suddenly, ha! The story takes a turn. Him and Sally Simpson get it on, and Tommy's free.
2: that's that autobiographical moment where Pete Townsend learned the ways of the world from his lady.
0: I.E. is Sally really Anya? Bingo! I'm gonna say well, yes. Well if you're lucky she's on you all night. Is he what I did? <laughs> and yet, Tommy does not come to sight or speak or hear. He's just not that free. And welcome leads to Tommy's holiday camp. And the kids rebel and we're not going to take it becomes the anthemic finish to one of the greatest albums of all time and certainly a great finale to this part of our story this week on The Imbalance History. We forsake you, gonna rape you, let's forget you better.
2: And a great album to end the 60s with as well. One of the many great albums that came out in 1969, ending a powerful and turbulent decade.
0: One of the things that I've been doing this week is going back and digging into my Who bootlegs, and that includes their performance at Woodstock, August 1969. The album had been out for a few months. All I could tell you is it was raw. It was the Who becoming who they were about to be as a band. They performed Tommy not in its entirety, but pretty close. There are some things they just couldn't reproduce, and they kind of like trimmed it down a little bit. And they played some other songs. And the last song before they said good night, good morning, or whatever the hell it was, was My Generation. Played it like punk rock speed with frantic energy on all fronts, including the most attacking bass solo I've ever heard the ox deliver on any form.
1: Thank you very much indeed. We like to play a song. And this is a song called My Generation. They will try to put us down now my generation
3: just because we can't my generation Oh. My my Hell, i my kids. Hold hope I before I get old. i my kids. generation. my generation, baby. Why don't y'all fade away? And don't try to dig what y'all sisters. about my, my kids. Yeah. I'm not trying to cause them. I'm giving them are about my
0: could tell you it was their way of saying goodbye to the 60s in that moment when they said it's my generation and they start playing the crowd whoever's there suddenly they realize "Fuck, they're talking about us and there they were in that moment introduced as a band who'd specially made the trip to upstate new york to be part of the fest the who tommy woodstock mic drop motherfuckers. I mean, can you think of any better way for somebody to mic drop in the 60s?
2: No. That and they
0: avoided Altamont, right? Very good move on their part. Man, I'm always in awe of what they achieved in this period of their career and obviously beyond. But Tommy, for me, it's right there, man. I'm right at that age when I'm really starting to get into music in longer forms. And this. Rock opera idea. It was crazy. Nobody had been doing this. I, I had been paying attention enough to know that. I
2: mean, you had prog rock developing big time. You had Led Zeppelin finding their way. And it's wild how these short, fast songs started growing into longer, deeper, more layered songs by all of these bands at this time.
0: After Woodstock, they play Isle of Wight and they would do a university tour in the new year. We almost had live at Hull, but there's some fucked up parts of the tape from the night they recorded at Hull University. So we have Live at Leeds recorded at the University of Leeds and that is the legendary live album. Where a young man ain't got nothing in the world that cements the who is the band that's gonna lift the banner and carry us all into the 70s it's an amazing moment in rock and roll history oh man I feel like I need a smoke and a snooze (laughs) I hear you man I hear you that's a good one buddy yeah it is and it's always a great time to sit and talk about rock and roll history with you but I think we've both really been ready for this our first full volley into the who and after tommy the 70s start and it starts with live at leeds and moves on from there and we'll uh cover that stretch of highway as well we already did in case you haven't heard it go back and search find on our website imbalancehistory.com our episode all about quadrophenia
2: another one of those albums that had a monumental impact on rock and roll kids everywhere were listening to that album And many kids in my age group that were in bands had that album in their rotation.
0: Thanks for keeping us in your personal rotation on your many podcast apps, or at least the one you're listening on. Uh, Don't forget, you can always drop us a line at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. Always looking for input uh, via email or on the socials.
2: You can hit us on Facebook at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You can hit us on Twitter at ImbalancedHisto or on Instagram at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.
0: It's a production of Dark Duck Media, distributed through the Pantheon Podcast Network. Thanks to Boldfoot Socks and Crooked Eye Brewery for their support of the podcast. Till the next time we crack the mic and do this crazy podcast, I'm Ray Food.
2: I'm Marcus Goldman.
0: And this is the Imbalance History
2: of Rock and Roll.